When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 5 of Meet Mr. Moliner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Hutchison. Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. Section 5. Came the Dawn. The man in the corner took a sip of stout and mild, and proceeded to point the moral of the story which he had just told us. Yes, gentlemen, he said, Shakespeare was right. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. We nodded. He had been speaking of a favorite dog of which, entered recently by some error in a local cat show, had taken first prize in the class for short-haired tortoiseshells, and we all thought the quotation well-chosen and apposite. There is indeed, said Mr. Mulliner. A rather similar thing happened to my nephew Lancelot. In the nightly reunions in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest, we have been trained to believe almost anything of Mr. Muller's relatives, but this, we felt, was a little too much. You mean to say your nephew Lancelot took a prize at a cat show? No, no, said Mr. Mulliner hastily. Certainly not. I've never deviated from the truth in my life, and I hope I never shall. No Mulliner has ever taken a prize at a cat show. No Mulliner, indeed, to the best of my knowledge, has even been entered for such a competition. What I meant was the fact that we never know what the future holds in store for us was well exemplified in the case of my nephew Lancelot, just as it was in the case of this gentleman's dog, which suddenly found itself transformed for all practical purposes into a short-haired tortoiseshell cat. It is a rather curious story and provides a good illustration of the adage that you can never tell and that it is always darkest before the dawn. At the time my story opens, said Mr. Mulliner, Lancelot, then twenty-four years of age, and recently come down from Oxford, was spending a few days with old Jeremiah Briggs, the founder and proprietor of the famous Briggs Breakfast Pickles on the latter's yacht at Cowes. This Jeremiah Briggs was Lancelot's uncle on the mother's side, and he had always interested himself in the boy. It was he who had sent him to university and it was the great wish of his heart that his nephew, on completing his education, should join him in the business. It was consequently a shock to the poor old gentleman when, as they sat together on deck the first morning of the visit, Lancelot, while expressing the deepest respect for Pickles as a class, firmly refused to start in and learn the business from the bottom up. The fact is, uncle, he said, I have mapped out a career for myself on far different lines. I am a poet. A poet? When did you feel this coming on? 
shortly after my 22nd birthday. Well, said the old man, overcoming his first natural feeling of repulsion, I don't see why that should stop us getting together. I use quite a lot of poetry in my business. I fear I could not bring myself to commercialize my muse. Young man, said Mr. Briggs, if an onion with a head like yours came into my factory, I would refuse to pickle it. He stopped below, thoroughly incensed. But Lancelot merely uttered a light laugh. He was young, it was summer, the sky was blue, the sun was shining, and the things in the world that really mattered were not cucumbers and vinegar, but romance and love. Oh, he felt, for some delightful girl to come along on whom he might lavish all the pent-up fervor which had been sizzling inside him for weeks. And at this moment, he saw her. She was leaning against the rail of a yacht that lay at its moorings some forty yards away, and as he beheld her, Lancelot's heart leaped like a young gherkin in the boiling vat. In her face, it seemed to him, was concentrated all the beauty of all the ages. Confronted with this girl, Cleopatra would have looked like Nellie Wallace, and Helen of Troy might have been her plain sister. He was still gazing at her in a sort of trance, when the bell sounded for luncheon, and he had to go below. All through the meal, while his uncle spoke of pickled walnuts he had known, Lancelot remained in a reverie. He was counting the minutes until he could get on deck and start goggling again. Judge, therefore, of his dismay when, on bounding up the companionway, he found that the other yacht had disappeared. He recalled now having heard a sort of harsh grating noise toward the end of luncheon, but at the time he had merely thought it was his uncle eating celery. Too late he realized that it must have been the raising of the anchor chain. Although at heart a dreamer, Lancelot Mulliner was not without a certain practical streak. Thinking the matter over, he soon hit upon a rough plan of action for getting on the track of the fair unknown who had flashed in and out of his life with such tragic abruptness. A girl like that, beautiful, lissom, and, as far as he had been able to tell at such long range, gimp, was sure to be fond of dancing. The chances were, therefore, that sooner or later he would find her at some nightclub or other. He started, accordingly, to make the rounds of the nightclubs. As soon as one was raided, he went on to another. Within a month he had visited the mauve mouse, the scarlet centipede, the vicious cheese, the gay fritter, the placid prune, the café de Bologna, Billy's, Millie's, Ike's, Spike's, Mike's, and the ham and beef. And it was at the ham and beef that at last he found her. He had gone there one evening for the fifth time principally because at that establishment there were a couple of specialty dancers to whom he had taken a dislike, shared by virtually every thinking man in London. It had always seemed to him that one of these nights the male member of the team, while whirling his partner around in a circle by her outstretched arms, might let her go and break her neck. And though constant disappointment had to some extent blunted the first fine enthusiasm of his early visits, he still hoped. On this occasion, the specialty dancers came and went unscathed as usual, but Lancelot hardly noticed them. His whole attention was concentrated on the girl seated across the room immediately opposite him. It was beyond a question. She. Well, you know what poets are. When their emotions are stirred, 
They are not like us dull, diffident fellows. They breathe quickly through their noses and get off to a flying start. In one bound, Lancelot was across the room, his heart beating till it sounded like a by-request solo from the trap drummer. Shall we dance? he said. Can you dance? said the girl. Lancelot gave a short, amused laugh. He had had a good university education and had not failed to profit by it. He was a man who never let his left hip know what his right hip was doing. I am old Colonel Charleston's favorite son, he said simply. A sound like the sudden descent of an iron girder on a sheet of tin, followed by a jangling of bells, a wailing of tortured cats, and the noise of a few steam riveters at work, announced to their trained ears that the music had begun. Sweeping her to him with a violence, which attempted in any other place would have earned him a sentence of thirty days, coupled with some strong remarks from the bench, Lancelot began to push her yielding form through the sea of humanity till they reached the center of the whirlpool. There, unable to move in any direction, they surrendered themselves to the ecstasy of the dance, wiping their feet on the polished flooring and occasionally pushing an elbow into some stranger's encroaching rib. This, murmured the girl with closed eyes, is divine. What? bellowed Lancelot, for the orchestra, in addition to ringing bells, had now begun to howl like wolves at dinner time. Divine! roared the girl. You certainly are a beautiful dancer. A beautiful what? Dancer. Who is? You are. Good egg, shrieked Lancelot rather wishing, though he was fond of music, that the orchestra would stop beating the floor with hammers. What did you say? I said, good egg. Why? Because the idea crossed my mind that, if you felt like it, you might care to marry me. There was a sudden lull in the storm. It was as if the audacity of his words had stricken the orchestra into a sort of paralysis. Dark-complexioned men who had been exploding bombs and touching off automobile hooters became abruptly immobile and sat rolling their eyeballs. One or two people left the floor, and plaster stopped falling from the ceiling. "'Marry you?' said the girl. "'I love you as no man has ever loved woman before.' "'Well, that's always something. "'What would the name be?' "'Mulliner. Lancelot Mulliner.' It might be worse. She looked at him with pensive eyes. Well, why not? She said. It would be a crime to let a dancer like you go out of the family. On the other hand, my father will kick like a mule. Father is an earl. What earl? The Earl of Biddlecombe. Well, earls aren't everything, said Lancelot with a touch of pique. The Mulliners are an old and honorable family. A Sieur de Moulinier came over with the conqueror. Ah, but did a Sieur de Moulinier ever do down the common people for a few hundred thousand and salt it away in gilt-edged securities? That's what's going to count the aged parent. What with taxes and super taxes and death duties and falling land values, there has, of recent years, been very, very little of the right stuff in the Biddlecombe sock. Shake the family money box, and you will hear but the faintest rattle. 
And I ought to tell you that the Junior Lipstick Club, 7 to 2, is being freely offered on my marrying Slingsby Purvis of Purvis's Liquid Dinner Glue. Nothing is definitely decided yet, but you can take it as coming straight from the stable that, unless something happens to upset current form, she whom you now see before you is the future Ma Purvis. Lancelot stamped his foot defiantly, eliciting a howl of agony from a passling reveler. This shall not be, he muttered. If you care to bet against it, said the girl, producing a small notebook, I can accommodate you at the current odds. Purvis, forsooth. I'm not saying it's a pretty name. All I'm trying to point out is that the present moment he heads the all the above have arrived list. He is our new market correspondence, five pound special in Captain Coe's final selection. What makes you think you can nose him out? Are you rich? At present, only in love. But tomorrow I go to my uncle, who is immensely wealthy. And touch him? Uh, not quite that. Nobody has touched Uncle Jeremiah since the early winter of 1885. But I shall get him to give me a job, and then we shall see. Do, said the girl warmly. And if you can stick the gaff into Purvis and work the young Lochinvar business, I shall be the first to touch off red fire. On the other hand, it's only fair to inform you that at the junior lipstick all the girls look on the race as a walkover. None of the big punters will touch it. Lancelot returned to his rooms that night undiscouraged. He intended to sink his former prejudices and write a poem in praise of Briggs' breakfast pickles, which would mark a new era in commercial verse. This he would submit to his uncle, and having stunned him with it, would agree to join the firm as chief poetry writer. He tentatively penciled down 5,000 pounds a year as the salary which he would demand. With a long-term contract for 5,000 a year in his pocket, he could approach Lord Biddlecombe and jerk a father's blessing out of him in no time. It would be humiliating, of course, to lower his genius by writing poetry about pickles, but a lover must make sacrifices. He bought a choir of the best foolscap, brewed a quart of the strongest coffee, locked his door, disconnected his telephone, and sat down at his desk. Genial old Jeremiah Briggs received him when he called next day at his palatial house, the Villa Chutney at Putney, with a bluff good humor which showed that he still had a warm spot in his heart for the young rascal. Sit down, boy, and have a pickled onion, said he cheerily, slapping Lancelot on the shoulder. You've come to tell me you've reconsidered your idiotic decision about not joining the business, eh? No doubt we thought a little bit beneath our dignity to start at the bottom and work our way up. But consider, my dear lad, we must learn to walk before we can run. And you could hardly expect me to make you chief cucumber buyer or head of the vinegar bottling department before you have acquired hard-won experience. If you will allow me to explain, uncle, eh? Mr. Briggs' geniality faded somewhat. Am I to understand that you don't want to come into the business? Yes and no, said Lancelot. I still consider that slicing up cucumbers and dipping them in vinegar is a poor life work for a man with the Promethean fire within him. But I propose to place at the disposal of the Briggs breakfast pickle my poetic gifts. Well, that's better than nothing. I've just been correcting the proofs of the last thing our man turned in. It's really excellent. 
Listen. Soon, soon, all human joys must end. Grim death approaches with his sickle. Courage, there is still time, my friend, to eat a Briggs breakfast pickle. If you could give us something like that, Lancelot raised his eyebrows. His lip curled. The little thing I have dashed off is not quite like that. Oh, you've written something, eh? A mere morceau. Would you care to hear it? Fire away, my boy. Lancelot produced his manuscript and cleared his throat. He began to read in a low, musical voice. <clears throat> Darkling, a Threnody, by L. Bassington Mulliner. Copyright in all languages, including the Scandinavian. The dramatic, musical comedy, and motion picture rights of this Threnody are strictly reserved. Applications for these should be made to the author. What is a Threnody? asked Mr. Briggs. This is, said Lancelot. He cleared his throat again and resumed. <clears throat> Black branches, like a corpse's withered hands, waving against the blacker sky, chill winds, bitter like the tang of half-remembered sins. Bats wheeling mournfully through the air, and on the ground, worms, toads, frogs, and nameless creeping things, and all around, desolation, doom, dyspepsia, and despair. I am a bat that wheels through the air of fate. I am a worm that wriggles in a swamp of disillusionment. I am a despairing toad. I have got dyspepsia. He paused. His uncle's eyes were protruding rather like those of a nameless creeping frog. What's all this? said Mr. Briggs. It seemed almost incredible to Lancelot that his poem should present any aspect of obscurity to even the meanest intellect, but he explained. The thing, he said, is symbolic. It essays to depict the state of mind of the man who has not yet tried Briggs' breakfast pickles. I shall require it to be printed in handset type on deep cream-colored paper. Yes, said Mr. Briggs, touching the bell, with beveled edges. It must be published, of course, uh, bound in limp leather, preferably of a violet shade, in a limited edition, confined to 105 copies. Each of these copies I will sign. You rang, sir, said the butler, appearing in the doorway. Mr. Briggs nodded curtly. Bustridge, said he, throw Mr. Lancelot out. Very good, sir. And see, added Mr. Briggs, superintending the subsequent proceedings from his library window, that he never darkens my doors again. When you have finished, Bustridge, ring up my lawyers on the telephone. I wish to alter my will. Youth is a resilient period. With all his worldly prospects swept away and a large bruise on his person, which made it uncomfortable to, for him to assume a sitting posture, you might have supposed that the return of Lancelot Mulliner from Putney would have resembled that of the late Napoleon from Moscow. Such, however, was not the case. What, Lancelot asked himself as he rode back to civilization on top of an omnibus, did money matter? Love, true love 
was all. He would go to Lord Biddlecombe and tell them so in a few neatly chosen words, and his lordship, moved by his eloquence, would doubtless drop a well-bred tear and see at once that the arrangements for his wedding to Angela, for such he had learned was her name, were hastened along with all possible speed. So uplifted was he by this picture that he began to sing, and would have continued for the remainder of the journey, had not the conductor in a rather brusque manner ordered him to desist. He was obliged to content himself until the bus reached Hyde Park Corner by singing in dumb show. The Earl of Biddlecombe's town residence was in Berkeley Square. Lancelot rang the bell, and a massive butler appeared. No hawkers, street criers, or circulars, said the butler. I wish to see Lord Biddlecombe. Is his lordship expecting you? Yes, said Lancelot. Feeling sure that the girl would have spoken to her father over the morning toast and marmalade of a possible visit from him. A voice made itself heard through the open door on the left of the long hall. Father and gay, your lordship, is that the feller? Yes, your lordship. Then bring him in, father and gay. Very good, your lordship. Lancelot found himself in a small, comfortably furnished room confronting a dignified-looking old man with a patrician nose and small side-whiskers who looked like something that long ago had come out of an egg. "'Afternoon,' said this individual. "'Good afternoon, Lord Biddlecombe,' said Lancelot. "'Now, about these trousers.' "'I beg your pardon? These trousers,' said the other, extending a shapely leg. "'Do they fit? Aren't they a bit baggy around the ankles?' Won't they jeopardize my social prestige if I am seen in them in the park? Lancelot was charmed with his affability. It gave him the feeling of having been made one of the family straight away. You really want my opinion? I do. I want your candid opinion as a God-fearing man and a member of a West End tailoring firm. But I'm not. Not a God-fearing man? Not a member of a West End tailoring firm. Come, come, said his lordship testily. You represent Gusset and Mainprice of Cork Street. No, I do not. Then who the devil are you? My name is Mulliner. Lord Biddlecombe rang the bell furiously. Father and Gay, your lordship, you told me this man was the feller I was expecting from Gusset and Mainprice. He certainly led me to suppose so, your lordship. Well, he isn't. His name is Mulliner. And this is the point, Father and Gay. This is the core and center of the thing. What the blazes does he want? I could not say, your lordship. I came here, Lord Biddlecombe, said Lancelot, to ask your consent to my immediate marriage with your daughter. My daughter? Your daughter. Which daughter? Angela. My daughter, Angela? Yes. You want to marry my daughter, Angela? I do. Oh? Well, be that as it may, said Lord Biddlecombe, can I interest you in an ingenious little combination mousetrap and pencil sharpener? Lancelot was for a moment a little taken aback by the question. Then, remembering what Angela had said of the state of the family finances, he recovered his poise. He thought no worse of this Grecian-beaked old man for eking out a slender income by acting as agent for the curious little object which he was now holding out to him. Many of the aristocracy, he was aware, had been forced into similar commercial enterprises by recent legislation, 
of a harsh and socialistic trend. I should like it above all things, he said courteously. I was thinking only this morning that it was just what I needed. Highly educational, not a toy. Fotheringay, book one, Mouso Penso. Very good, your lordship. Are uh, you troubled at all with headaches, Mr. Mulliner? Very seldom. Then what you want is Clark's Cure for Corns. Shall we say one of the large bottles? Certainly. Then that, with a year's subscription to our tots, will come to precisely one pound, three shillings, and sixpence. Thank you. Will there be anything further? Uh, no, thank you. Now, <clears throat> touching the matter of, you wouldn't care for a scarf pen? Any ties, collars, shirts? No? Then goodbye, Mr. Mulliner. But, Fotheringay, said Lord Biddlecombe, throw Mr. Mulliner out. As Lancelot scrambled to his feet from the hard pavement of Berkeley Square, he was conscious of a rush of violent anger which deprived him momentarily of speech. He stood there, glaring at the house from which he had been ejected, his face working hideously. So absorbed was he that it was some time before he became aware that somebody was plucking at his coat sleeve. Pardon me, sir. Lancelot looked around. A stout, smooth-faced man with horn-rimmed spectacles was standing beside him. If you could spare me a moment, Lancelot shook him off impatiently. He had no desire at a time like this to chatter with strangers. The man was babbling something, but the words made no impression upon his mind. With a savage scowl, Lancelot snatched the fellow's umbrella from him and, poising it for an instant, flung it with a sure aim through Lord Biddlecombe's study window. Then, striding away, he made for Barclay Street. Glancing over his shoulder as he turned the corner, he saw that Fotheringay, the butler, had come out of the house and was standing over the spectacled man with a certain quiet menace in his demeanor. He was rolling up his sleeves, and his fingers were twitching a little. Lancelot dismissed the man from his thoughts. His whole mind now was concentrated on the coming interview with Angela, for he had decided that the only thing to do was to seek her out at her club, where she would doubtless be spending the afternoon and plead with her to follow the dictates of her heart, and abandoning her parents and wealthy suitors, come with her true mate to a life of honest poverty, sweetened by love and verse libra. Arriving at the junior lipstick, he inquired for her, and the hall porter dispatched a boy in buttons to fetch her from the billiard room, where she was refereeing the finals of the debutante's shove-halfpenny tournament. And presently his heart leaped as he saw her coming towards him, looking more like a vision of springtime than anything human and earthly. She was smoking a cigarette in a long holder, and as she approached, she inserted a monocle inquiringly in her right eye. Hello, laddie, she said. You here? What's on the mind besides hair? Talk quick. I've only got a minute. Angela, said Lancelot, I have to report a slight hitch in the program which I sketched out at our last meeting. I have just been to see my uncle, and he has washed his hands of me and cut me out of his will. Nothing doing in that quarter, you mean, said the girl, chewing her lower lip thoughtfully. Nothing. But what of it? What matters it so long as we have each other? Money is dross. Love is everything. Yes, love indeed is light from heaven, a spark of that immortal fire which angels shared, by Allah given to lift from earth our low desire. 
Give me to live with love alone, and let the world go dine and dress. If life's a flower, I choose my own. Tis love and idleness. When beauty fires the blood, how love exalts the mind. Come, Angela, let us read together in a book more moving than the Koran, more eloquent than Shakespeare, the book of books, the crown of all literature. Bradshaw's Railway Guide. We will turn up a page and you shall put your finger down and wherever it rests, there we will go. To live forever with our happiness. Oh, Angela, let us. Sorry, said the girl. Purvis wins. The race goes by the form book after all. There was a time when I thought you might be going to crowd him on the rails and get your nose first under the wire with a quick last-minute dash, but apparently it's not to be. Deepest sympathy, old Crocus, but that's that. Lancelot staggered. You mean you intend to marry this Purvis? Pop in about a month from now at St. George's Hanover Square and see for yourself. You would allow this man to, to buy you with his gold? Don't overlook his diamonds. Does love count for nothing? Surely you love me. Of course I do, my desert king. When you do that flat-footed, black-bottom step with the sort of wiggly-tiggle at the end, I feel as if I were eating plover's eggs in a new dress to the accompaniment of heavenly music. She sighed. Yes, I love you, Lancelot. And women are not like men. They do not love lightly. When a woman gives her heart, it is forever. The years will pass, and you will turn to another, but I shall not forget. However, as you have in a bob in the world, she beckoned to the hall porter. Margerson, your ladyship? Is it raining? No, your ladyship. Are the front steps clean? Yes, your ladyship. Then throw Mr. Mulliner out. Lancelot leaned against the railings of the junior lipstick and looked out through a black mist upon a world that heaved and rocked and seemed on the point of disintegrating into ruin and chaos. And a lot he would care, he told himself bitterly, if it did. If Seymour Place from the west and Charles Street from the east had taken a running jump and landed on the back of his neck, it would have added little or nothing to the turmoil of his mind. In fact, he would have rather preferred it. Fury, as it had done on the pavement of Barclay Square, robbed him of speech. But his hands, his shoulders, his brows, his lips, his nose, and even his eyelashes seemed to be charged with a silent eloquence. He twitched his eyebrows in agony. He twiddled his fingers in despair. Nothing was left now, he felt, as he shifted the lobe of his left ear in a nor-nor-easterly direction, but suicide. Yes, he told himself, tightening and relaxing the muscles of his cheeks. All that remained now was death. But even as he reached this awful decision, a kindly voice spoke in his ear. Oh, come now, I wouldn't say that, said the kindly voice. And Lancelot, turning, perceived the smooth-faced man who had tried to engage him in conversation in Berkeley Square. Say, listen, said the smooth-faced man, sympathy in each lens of his horn-rimmed spectacles. Tempests may lower, and a strong man stand face to face with his soul, but hope, like a healing herb, will show the silver lining where beckons joy and life and happiness. Lancelot eyed him haughtily. I am not aware, he began. Say, listen, said the other, laying a soothing hand on his shoulder. I know just what has happened. Mammon has conquered Cupid. 
and once more youth has had to learn the old, old lesson that, though the face be fair, the heart may be cold and callous. What? The smooth man raised his hand. That afternoon, her apartment. No, it can never be. I shall wed a wealthier wooer. Lancelot's fury began to dissolve into awe. There seemed something uncanny in the way this total stranger had diagnosed the situation. He stared at him, bewildered. How do you know? he gasped. You told me. I? Your face did. I could read every word. I've been watching you for the last two minutes, and say, boy, it was a wow. Who are you? asked Lancelot. The smooth-faced man produced from his waistcoat pocket a fountain pen, two cigars, a packet of chewing gum, a small button bearing the legend Boost for Hollywood, and a visiting card, in the order named. Replacing the other articles, he handed the card to Lancelot. I'm Isidore Zizenheimer, kid, he said. I represent the bigger, better, and brighter motion picture company of Hollywood Cal, incorporated last July for $1,600 million. And if you're thinking of asking me what I want, I want you. Yes, sir. Say, listen, a fellow that can register the way you can is needed in my business. And if you think money can stop me getting him, name the biggest salary you can think of and hear me laugh. Boy, I use banknotes for summer underclothing. I don't care how bad you've got the gimmies if you only sign on the dotted line. Say, listen, a bozo that with a mere twitch of the upper lip can make it plain to one and all that he loves a haughty aristocrat and that she has given him the air because his rich uncle, who is a pickle manufacturer living in Putney, won't have anything more to do with him, is required out at Hollywood by the next boat, if the movies are ever to become an educational force in the truest and deepest sense of the words. Lancelot stared at him. You want me to come to Hollywood? I want you, and I'm going to get you. And if you think you're going to prevent me, you're trying to stop Niagara with a tennis racket. Boy, you're great. When you register, you register. Your face is as chatty as a board of directors. Say, listen, you know the great thing we folks in the motion picture industry have got to contend with? The curse of the motion picture industry is that in every audience, there are from six to seven young women with adenoids who will insist on reading out the titles as they're flashed on the screen, filling the rest of the customers with harsh thoughts and dreams of murder. What we're trying to collect is stars that can register so well that the titles won't be needed. And boy, you're the king of them. I know you're feeling good and sore just now because that bezel in there spurned your honest love, but forget it. Think of your art. Think of your public. Come now. What shall we say to start with? 5000 a week? 10000 You call the shots. I'll provide the blank contract and the fountain pen. Lancelot needed no further urging. Already love had turned to hate and he no longer wished to marry Angela. Instead, he wanted to make her burn with anguish and vain regrets, and it seemed to him that fate was pointing the way. Pretty silly the future Lady Angela Purvis would feel when she discovered that she had rejected the love of a man with a salary of $10,000 a week. And fairly foolish her old father would feel when news reached him of the good thing he had allowed to get away. And racking would be the remorse when he returned to London as civilized girlhood's sweetheart, and they saw him addressing mobs from a hotel balcony, of his Uncle Jeremiah, of Fotheringay, of Brewstridge, and of Margerison. A light gleamed in Lancelot's eye, 
and he rolled the tip of his nose in a circular movement. You consent, said Mr. Zinzenheimer, delighted. boy. Here's the pen, and here's the contract. Gimme, said Lancelot. A benevolent grow irradiated the other spectacles. Came the dawn, he murmured. Came the dawn. End of section 5section six of meet mr mulliner this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by james hutchison meet mr mulliner by p g woodhouse the story of william miss postlewaite our able and vigilant barmaid, had whispered to us that the gentleman sitting over there in the corner was an American gentleman. Comes from America, added Miss Postlewaite, making her meaning clearer. From America, echoed we. From America, said Miss Postlethwaite. He's an American. Mr. Mulliner rose with an old-world grace. We do not often get Americans in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest. When we do, we welcome them. We make them realize that hands across the sea is no mere phrase. Good evening, sir, said Mr. Mulliner. I wonder if you would care to join my friend and myself in a little refreshment. Very kind of you, sir. Miss Postlethwaite, the usual. I understand you are from the other side, sir. Do you find our English countryside pleasant? Delightful. Though, of course, if I may say so, scarcely to be compared with the scenery of my home state. What state is that? California, replied the other, baring his head. California, the jewel state of the Union. With its azure sea, its noble hills, its eternal sunshine and its fragrant flowers, California stands alone. Peopled by stalwart men and womanly women, oh, California would be all right, said Mr. Mulliner, if it wasn't for the earthquakes. Our guest started, as though some venomous snake had bitten him. Earthquakes are absolutely unknown in California, he said hoarsely. What about the one in 1906? That was not an earthquake. It was a fire. An earthquake, I always understood, said Mr. Mulliner. My Uncle William was out there during it, and many a time has he said to me, My boy, it was the San Francisco earthquake that won me a bride. Couldn't have been the earthquake. May have been the fire. Well, I will tell you the story, and you shall judge for yourself. I shall be glad to hear your story about the San Francisco fire said the Californian courteously. My Uncle William, said Mr. Mulliner, was returning from the East at the time. The commercial interests of the Mulliners had always been far-flung, and he had been over in China looking into the workings of a tea-exporting business, in which he held a number of shares. It was his intention to get off the boat at San Francisco and cross the continent by rail. He particularly wanted to see the Grand Canyon of Arizona, and when he found that Myrtle Banks had for years cherished the same desire, 
It seemed to him so plain a proof that they were twin souls that he decided to offer her his hand and heart without delay. This Miss Banks had been a fellow traveler on the boat all the way from Hong Kong, and day by day Mr. Mulliner had fallen more and more deeply in love with her. So on the last day of the voyage, as they were steaming in at the Golden Gate, he proposed. I've never been informed of the exact words which he employed, but no doubt they were eloquent. All the Mulliners have been able speakers, and on such an occasion he would, of course, have extended himself. When at length he finished, it seemed to him that the girl's attitude was distinctly promising. She stood gazing over the rail into the water below in a sort of rapt way. Then she turned. Mr. Molliner, she said, I'm greatly flattered and honored by what you have just told me. These things happened, you will remember, in the days when girls talked like that. You have paid me the greatest compliment a man can bestow on a woman, and yet... William Mulliner's heart stood still. He did not like that, and yet... Is there another? he muttered. Well, yes, there is. Mr. Franklin proposed to me this morning. I told him I would think it over. There was a silence. William was telling himself that he had been afraid of that bounder Franklin all along. He might have known, he felt, that Desmond Franklin would be a menace. The man was one of those lean, keen, hawk-faced, empire-building sort of chaps you find out east. The kind of fellow who stands on deck chewing his mustache with a faraway look in his eyes, and then, when the girl asks him what he is thinking about, draws a short, quick breath and says he's sorry to be so absent-minded. But a sunset like that always reminds him of the day when he killed the four pirates with his bare hands and saved dear old Tuppy Smithers in the nick of time. There is a great glamour about Mr. Franklin, said Myrtle Banks. We women admire men who do things. A girl cannot help but respect a man who once killed three sharks with a Boy Scout pocket knife. So he says, growled William. He showed me the pocket knife said the girl simply, and on another occasion he brought down two lions with one shot. William Mulliner's heart was heavy, but he struggled on. Well, very possibly he may have done these things, he said, but surely marriage means more than this. Personally, if I were a girl, I would go rather for a certain steadiness and stability of character. To illustrate what I mean, did you happen to see me win the egg and spoon race at the ship's sports? Now there, it seems to me, in what I might call microcosm, was an exhibition of all the qualities a married man most requires. Intense coolness, iron resolution, and a quiet, unassuming courage. The man who under test conditions is carried an egg once and a half times around a deck and a small spoon is a man who can be trusted. She seemed to waver, but only for a moment. I must think, she said. I must think. Certainly, said William. Uh, you will let me see something of you at the hotel after we have landed? Of course. And if, I mean to say, whatever happens, I shall always look on you as a dear, dear friend. Yes, said William Mulliner. 
For three days, my Uncle William's stay in San Francisco was as pleasant as could reasonably be expected, considering that Desmond Franklin was also stopping at his and Miss Banks's hotel. He contrived to get the girl to himself, to quite a satisfactory extent, and they spent many happy hours together in the Golden Gate Park and at the Cliff House, watching the seals basking on the rocks. But on the evening of the third day, the blow fell. Mr. Mulliner, said Myrtle Banks, I want to tell you something. Anything, breathed William tenderly, except that you are going to marry that perisher Franklin. But that is exactly what I was going to tell you, and I must not let you call him a perisher, for he is a very brave, intrepid man. When did you decide on this rash act? asked William, dully. Scarcely an hour ago. We were talking in the garden, and somehow or another we got on to the subject of rhinoceroses. He then told me how he had once been chased up a tree by a rhinoceros in Africa, and escaped by throwing pepper in the brute's eyes. He most fortunately chanced to be eating his lunch when the animal arrived, and he had a hard-boiled egg and the pepper pot in his hands. When I heard this story, like Desdemona, I loved him for the dangers he had passed, and he loved me that I did pity them. The wedding is to be in June. William Mulliner ground his teeth in a sudden access of jealous rage. Personally, he said, I consider that the story you have just related reveals this man Franklin in a very dubious, I might almost say sinister, light. On his own showing, the leading trait in his character appears to be cruelty to animals. The fellow seems totally incapable of meeting a shark or a rhinoceros or any other of our dumb friends without instantly going out of his way to inflict bodily injury on it. Last thing I would wish is to be indelicate, but I cannot refrain from pointing out that if your union is blessed, your children will probably be the sort of children who kick cats and tie tin cans to dogs' tails. If you take my advice, you'll write the man a little note saying you're sorry, but you have changed your mind. The girl rose in a marked manner. I do not require your advice, Mr. Mulliner, she said coldly, and I have not changed my mind. Instantly, William Mulliner was all contrition. There's a certain stage in the progress of a man's love when he feels like curling up in a ball and making little bleating noises, if the object of his affections so much as looks squiggle-eyed at him. And this stage my Uncle William had reached. He followed her as she paced proudly away through the hotel lobby and stammered incoherent apologies. But Myrtle Banks was adamant. Leave me, Mr. Mulliner, she said, pointing at the revolving door that led into the street. You have maligned a better man than yourself, and I wish to have nothing more to do with you. Go. William went as directed, and so great was the confusion of his mind that he got stuck in the revolving door and had gone around it no fewer than eleven times before the hall porter came to extricate him. I would have removed you from the machinery earlier, sir, said the hall porter deferentially, having deposited him safely in the street. But my bet with my mate in there called for ten laps. I waited till you had completed eleven, so there should be no argument. 
William looked at him dazedly. Hall Porter, he said. Sir? Tell me, Hall Porter, said William. Suppose the only girl you had ever loved had gone and got engaged to another. What would you do? The Hall Porter considered. Let me get this right, he said. The proposition is, if I have followed you correctly, what would I do supposing the Jane, on whom I had always looked as a steady mama, had handed me the old skimmer and told me to take all the air I needed because she'd gotten another sweetie? Precisely. Your question is easily answered, said the hall porter. I'd go around the corner and get me a nice stiff drink at Mike's place. A drink? Yes, sir. A nice stiff one. At, where did you say? Mike's place, sir. Just around the corner. You can't miss it. William thanked him and walked away. The man's words had started a new and in many ways interesting train of thought. A drink and a nice stiff one? There might be something in it. William Mulliner had never tasted alcohol in his life. He had promised his late mother that he would not do so until he was either twenty-one or forty-one. He could never remember which. He was at present twenty-nine, but wishing to be on the safe side in case he had got his figures wrong, he remained a teetotaler. But now, as he walked listlessly along the street towards the corner, it seemed to him that his mother in the special circumstances could not reasonably object if he took a slight snort. He raised his eyes to heaven, and as though to ask her if a couple of quick ones might not be permitted, and he fancied that a faint, far-off voice whispered, Go to it. And at this moment he found himself standing outside a brightly lighted saloon. For an instant he hesitated. Then, as a twinge of anguish in the region of his broken heart reminded him of the necessity for immediate remedies, he pushed open the swing doors and went in. The principal feature of the cheerful, brightly lit room in which he found himself was a long counter, at which were standing a number of the citizenry, each with an elbow on the woodwork and a foot upon the neat brass rail which ran below. Behind the counter appeared the upper section of one of the most benevolent and kindly-looking men that William had ever seen. He had a large, smooth face, and he wore a white coat, and he eyed William as he advanced with a sort of reverent joy. "'Is this Mike's place?' asked William. "'Yes, sir,' replied the white-coated man. "'Are you Mike?' No, sir, but I am his representative and have full authority to act on his behalf. What can I have the pleasure of doing for you? The man's whole attitude made him seem so like a large-hearted elder brother that William felt no diffidence about confiding in him. He placed an elbow on the counter and a foot on the rail and spoke with a sob in his voice. Suppose the only girl you had ever loved had gone and gotten engaged to another, and what, in your view, would best meet the case? The gentlemanly bartender pondered for some moments. Well, he replied at length, I advance it, you understand, as a purely personal opinion, and I shall not be in the least offended if you decide not to act upon it. But my suggestion, for what it's worth, is that you try a dynamite dewdrop. One of the crowd that had gathered sympathetically around shook his head. He was a charming man with a black eye, 
who had shaved on the preceding Thursday. Much better give him a Dreamland special. A second man in a sweater and a cloth cap had yet another theory. You can't beat an undertaker's joy. They were all so perfectly delightful and appeared to have his interests so unselfishly at heart that William could not bring himself to choose between them. He solved the problem in diplomatic fashion by playing no favorites and ordering all three of the beverages recommended. The effect was instantaneous and gratifying. As he drained the first glass, it seemed to him that a torchlight procession, of whose existence he had hitherto not been aware, had begun to march down his throat and explore the recesses of his stomach. The second glass, though slightly too heavily charged with molten lava, was extremely palatable. It helped the torchlight procession along by adding to it a brass band of singular power and sweetness of tone. And with the third, somebody began to touch off fireworks inside his head. William felt better, not only spiritually, but physically. He seemed to himself to be a bigger, finer man, and the loss of Myrtle Banks had somehow in a flash lost nearly all its importance. After all, as he said to the man with the black eye, Myrtle Banks wasn't everybody. Now what do you recommend, he asked the man with the sweater, having turned the last glass upside down. The other mused, one forefinger thoughtfully pressed against the side of his face. Well, I'll tell you, he said, when my brother Elmer lost his girl, he drank straight rye. Yes, sir, that's what he drank, straight rye. I've lost my girl, he said, and I'm going to drink straight rye. That's what he said. Yes, sir. Straight rye. And was your brother Elmer, asked William anxiously, a man whose example, in your opinion, should be followed? Was he a man you could trust? He owned the biggest duck farm in the southern half of Illinois. That settles it, said William. What was good enough for a duck who owned half Illinois is good enough for me. Oblige me he said to the gentleman bartender, by asking these gentlemen what they will have and start pouring. The bartender obeyed, and William, having tried a pint or two of the strange liquid just to see if he liked it, found out that he did, and ordered some. He then began to move about among his new friends, patting one on the shoulder, slapping another affably on the back, and asking a third what his Christian name was. I want you all, he said, climbing onto the counter so that his voice should carry better, to come and stay with me in England. Never in my life have I met men whose faces I liked so much. More like brothers than anything is the way I regard you. So just you pack up a few things and come along and put up at my little place for as long as you can manage. You particularly, my dear old chap, he added, beaming at the man in the sweater. Thanks said the man with the sweater. What did you say? said William. I said thanks. William slowly removed his coat and rolled up his shirt sleeves. I call you gentlemen to witness, he said quietly, that I have been grossly insulted by this gentleman who has just grossly insulted me. I'm not a quarrelsome man, but if anybody wants a row, they can have it. And when it comes to being cursed and sworn at, by an ugly bounder and a sweater and a cloth cap, it is time to take steps. And with those spirited words, William Mulliner sprang from the counter, grasped the other by the throat, and bit him sharply on the right ear.
There was a confused interval during which somebody attached himself to the collar of William's waistcoat and the seat of William's trousers, and then a sense of swift movement and rush of cool air. William discovered that he was seated on the pavement outside the saloon. A hand emerged from the swing door and threw his hat out, and he was alone with the night and his meditations. These words, you may suppose, of a singularly bitter nature. Sorrow and disillusionment racked William Mulliner like a physical pain. That his friends inside there, in spite of the fact that he had been all sweetness and light and had not done a thing to them, should have thrown him out into the hard street, was the saddest thing he'd ever heard of. And for some minutes he sat there, weeping silently. Presently he heaved himself to his feet, placing one foot with infinite delicacy in front of the other, and then drawing the other one up and placing it with infinite delicacy in front of that, he began to walk back to the hotel. At the corner he paused. There were some railings on his right. He clung to them and rested a while. The railings to which William Muller had attached himself belonged to a brownstone house of the kind that seems destined from the first moment of its building to receive guests, both resident and transient, at a moderate weekly rental. It was, in fact, as he would have discovered had he been clear-sighted enough to read the card over the door, Mrs. Beulah O'Brien's Theatrical Boarding House. A home from home. No checks cashed. This means you. But William was not in the best shape for reading cards. A sort of mist had obscured the world, and he was finding it difficult to keep his eyes open. Presently, his chin wedged into the railings, he fell into a dreamless sleep. He was awakened by light flashing in his eyes, and opening them saw that a window opposite where he was standing had become brightly illuminated. His slumbers had cleared his vision, and he was able to observe that the room into which he was looking was a dining room. The long table was set for the evening meal, and to William, as he gazed, the sight of that cozy apartment with the gaslight falling on the knives and forks and spoons, seemed the most pathetic and poignant that he had ever beheld. A mood of the most extreme sentimentality now had him in its grip. The thought that he would never own a little home like that racked him from stem to stern with an almost unbearable torment. What, argued William, clinging to the rails and crying weakly, could compare when you came right down to it with a little home. A man with a little home is all right, whereas a man without a little home is just a bit of flotsam on the ocean of life. If Myrtle Banks had only consented to marry him, he would have a little home. But she had refused to marry him, so he would never have a little home. What Myrtle Banks wanted, felt William, was a good swift clout on the side of the head. The thought pleased him. He was feeling physically perfect again now, and seemed to have shaken off completely the slight indisposition from which he had been suffering. His legs had lost their tendency to act independently of the rest of his body. His head felt clearer, and he had a sense of overwhelming strength. If ever, in short, there was a moment when he could administer that clout on the side of the head to Myrtle Banks as it should be administered, that moment was now. He was on the point of moving off to find her and teach her what it meant to stop a man like himself from having a little home, when someone entered the room into which he was looking, and he paused to make further inspection. The new arrival was a colored maidservant, 
She staggered to the head of the table beneath the weight of a large tureen containing, so William suspected, hash. A moment later, a stout woman with bright golden hair came in and sat down opposite the tureen. The instinct to watch other people eat is one of the most deeply implanted in the human bosom, and William lingered intent. There was, he told himself, no need to hurry. He knew which was Myrtle's room in the hotel. It was just across the corridor from his own. He could pop in any time, during the night, and give her that clout. Meanwhile, he wanted to watch these people eat hash. And then the door opened again, and there filed into the room a little procession. And William, clutching the railings, watched it with bulging eyes. The procession was headed by an elderly man in a check suit with a carnation in his buttonhole. He was about three feet six in height, though the military jauntiness with which he carried himself made him seem fully three feet seven. He was followed by a younger man who wore spectacles and whose height was perhaps three feet four. And behind these two came, in single file, six others, scaling down by degrees until, bringing up the rear of the procession, there entered a rather stout man in tweeds and bedroom slippers who could not have measured more than two feet eight. They took their places at the table. Hash was distributed to all, and the man in the tweeds, having inspected his plate with obvious relish, removed his slippers, and picking up his knife and fork with his toes, fell to with a keen appetite. William Mulliner uttered a soft moan and tottered away. It was a black moment for my Uncle William. Only an instant before, he had been congratulating himself on having shaken off the effects of his first indulgence in alcohol after an abstinence of twenty-nine years, but now he perceived he was still intoxicated. Intoxicated? The word did not express it by a mile. He was oiled, boiled, fried, plastered, whiffled, sozzled, and blotto. Only by the exercise of the most consummate caution and address could he hope to get back to his hotel and reach his bedroom without an open scandal. Of course, if his walk that night had taken him a few yards farther down the street than the door of Mike's place, he would have seen that there was a very simple explanation of the spectacle which he had just witnessed. A walk so extended would have brought him to the San Francisco Palace of Varieties, outside which large posters proclaimed the exclusive engagement for two weeks of Murphy's Midgets, bigger and better than ever. But of the existence of these posters he was not aware, and it is not too much to say that the iron entered into William Mulliner's soul. That his leg should have been temporarily unscrewed at the joints was a phenomenon which he had been able to bear with fortitude. That his head should be feeling as if a good many bees had decided to use it as a hive was unpleasant, but not unbearably so. But that his brain should have gone off its casters and be causing him to see visions was the end of all things. William had always prided himself on the keenness of his mental powers. All through the long voyage on the ship, when Desmond Franklin had related anecdotes illustrative of his prowess as a man of action, William Mulliner had always consoled himself by feeling that in the matter of brain he could give Franklin three bisques and a beating any time he chose to start. And now, it seemed, he had lost even this advantage over his rival. 
For Franklin, dull-witted clod though he might be, was not such an absolute minus quantity that he would imagine he had seen a man of two feet eight cutting up hash with his toes. That hideous depth of mental decay had been reserved for William Mulliner. Moodily, he made his way back to his hotel. In a corner of the palm room, he saw Myrtle Banks deep in conversation with Franklin, but all desire to give her a cloud on the side of the head had now left him. With his chin sunk on his breast, he entered the elevator and was carried up to his room. Here, as rapidly as his quivering fingers would permit, he undressed, and climbing into the bed as it came around for the second time, lay for a space with wide open eyes. He had been too shaken to switch his light off, and the rays of the lamp shone on the handsome ceiling which undulated above him. He gave himself up to thought once more. No doubt, he felt, thinking it over now, his mother had had some very urgent reason for withholding him from alcoholic drink. She must have known of some family secret, sedulously guarded from his infant ears, some dark tale of a fatal Mulliner taint. William must never learn of this, she had probably said, when they told her the old legend of how every Mulliner for centuries back had died a maniac, victim at last to the fatal fluid. And tonight, Despite her gentle care, he had found out for himself. He saw now that this disarrangement of his eyesight was only the first step in the gradual disillusion which was the milliner curse. Soon his sense of hearing would go, then his sense of touch. He sat up in bed. It seemed to him that, as he gazed at the ceiling, a considerable section of it had parted from the parent body and fallen with a crash to the floor. William stared dumbly. He knew, of course, that it was an illusion. But what a perfect illusion. If he had not had the special knowledge which he possessed, he would have stated without fear of contradiction that there was a gap six feet wide above him and a mass of dust and plaster on the carpet below. And even as his eyes deceived him, so did his ears. He seemed to be conscious of a babble of screams and shouts, the corridor, he could have sworn, was full of flying feet. The world appeared to be all bangs and crashes and thuds. A cold fear gripped at William's heart. His sense of hearing was playing tricks with him already. His whole being recoiled from making the final experiment, but he forced himself out of bed. He reached a finger towards the nearest heap of plaster and drew it back with a groan. Yes, it was as he feared. His sense of touch had gone wrong, too. That heap of plaster, though purely a figment of his disordered brain, had felt solid. So, there it was. One little moderately festive evening at Mike's place and the curse of the Mulliners had got him. Within an hour of absorbing the first drink of his life, it had deprived him of his sight, his hearing, and his sense of touch. Quick service, felt William Mulliner. As he climbed back into bed, it appeared to him that two of the walls fell out. He shut his eyes, and presently sleep, which has well been called tired nature's sweet restorer, brought oblivion. His last waking thought was that he imagined he had heard another wall go. William Mulliner was a sound sleeper, and it was many hours before consciousness returned to him. When he awoke, he looked about in astonishment. The haunting horror of the night had passed, and now, 
Though conscious of a rather severe headache, he knew that he was seeing things as they were. And yet it seemed odd to think that what he beheld was not the remains of some nightmare. Not only was the world slightly yellow and a bit blurred about the edges, but it had changed in its very essentials overnight. Where eight hours before there had been a wall, only an open space appeared, with bright sunlight streaming through it. The ceiling was on the floor, and almost the only thing remaining of what had been an expensive bedroom in a first-class hotel was the bed. Very strange, he thought, and very irregular. A voice broke in upon his meditations. Why, Mr. Moliner! William turned, and, being like all the Moliners the soul of modesty, dived abruptly beneath the bedclothes. For the voice was the voice of Myrtle Banks. And she was in his room. Mr. Moliner! William poked his head out cautiously, and then he perceived that the proprieties had not been outraged as he had imagined. Miss Banks was not in his room, but in the corridor. The intervening wall had disappeared. Shaken, but relieved, he sat up in the bed, the sheet drawn around his shoulders. You don't mean to say you're still in bed, gasped the girl. Why, is it awfully late, said William. Did you actually stay up here through all it? Through what? The earthquake. What earthquake? The earthquake last night. Oh, that earthquake, said William carelessly. I did notice some sort of an earthquake. I remember seeing the ceiling come down and saying to myself, I shouldn't wonder if that wasn't an earthquake. Then the walls fell out and I said, yes, I believe it is an earthquake. Then I turned over and went to sleep. Myrtle Banks was staring at him with eyes that reminded him partly of twin stars and partly of a snail's. You must be the bravest man in the world. William gave a curt laugh. Oh, well, he said. I may not spend my whole life persecuting unfortunate sharks with pocket knives, but I find I generally manage to keep my head fairly well in a crisis. We Mulliners are like that. We do not say much, but we have the right stuff in us. He clutched his head. A sharp spasm had reminded him how much of the right stuff he had in him at that moment. My hero, breathed a girl, almost inaudibly. And how is your fiancé this bright sunny morning, asked William, nonchalantly. He was tortured to refer to the man, but he must show her that a Mulliner knew how to take his medicine. She gave a little shudder. I have no fiancé, she said. But I thought you told me you and Franklin... I am no longer engaged to Mr. Franklin. Last night, when the earthquake started, I cried to him to help me, and he, with a hasty some other time over his shoulder, disappeared into the open like something shot out of a gun. I never saw the man run so fast. This morning I broke off the engagement. She uttered a scornful laugh. Sharks and pocket knives. I don't believe he ever killed a shark in his life. And even if he did, said William, what of it? I mean to say, how infrequently in married life must the necessity for killing sharks with pocket knives arise? What a husband needs is not some purely adventitious gift like that, a parlor trick you might almost call it, but a steady character, a warm and generous disposition, and a loving heart. How true, she murmured dreamily. Myrtle, said William, 
I would be a husband like that. The steady character, the warm and generous disposition, and the loving heart to which I have alluded are at your disposal. Will you accept them? I will, said Myrtle Banks. And that, concluded Mr. Mulliner, is the story of my Uncle William's romance. And you will readily understand, having heard it, how his eldest son, my cousin J.S.F.E. Mulliner, got his name. J.S.F.E., I said. John San Francisco Earthquake Mulliner, explained my friend. There never was a San Francisco earthquake, said the Californian. Only a fire. End of section six. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.